Good evening, everyone. So wonderful to be with you all. Uh, for those of you that haven't met, my name is Adnan. Uh, I am one of the leaders here in Myland, uh, a part of the Christchurch London community, and I have the privilege of continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we restarted it, I believe, last week. We took a little break to focus on the generosity series, as you'll remember, uh, but we are coming and diving back into the uh, Luke of Gospel. No, go- Gospel of Luke. Great. I just want us to begin with a question, and that is, If you wanted to start a movement, any movement, how would you go about starting it? And what would that movement look like? How would you galvanize people for that movement? Who would you invite along? Well, I suppose it depends on what kind of movement you want to begin, right? Let's say you want to start a movement that is attractive and profitable. You'll uh, probably want to get followers who can give you the platforms and get you in with the right people uh, that can really shape and sell the message that you have or the product that you have. So you probably target those who are rich or popular or good-looking or have loads of Instagram followers, and you'd hope that by doing that, it gets you to the point where you're able to achieve your goal. Or maybe your movement is one for justice, and so you target those who are mostly perhaps victims of some sort of, uh, some level of inequality or oppression, and you mobilize those who want to see a level of change in society or culture or politics. So what would a movement look like? And who would that movement consist of? What would be their occupation or their background or their education history? What would their social status be? So today we're looking at a passage where we see this unusual beginning of a movement started by Jesus himself. And what we'll see is that it's the most unlikeliest of people which he calls to be a part of that movement, all of whom seem actually at many levels to be inexperienced or unqualified or unequipped for it. People who not only have very little in common with each other, but actually people who have very many differences who you would think putting them together would actually jeopardize a movement and mission completely. So today we are focusing on two particular people who Jesus calls to be his disciples and to follow him. And hopefully we'll see why uh, their calling is relevant and important for us as disciples right here in London in the 21st century. So let's start by reading from Luke chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles with you, if not, then the words will be on the screen too. So I'll be reading from Luke 5, uh, verses 1 onwards. And it says this. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, but master, we've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they started signaling their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so, fu- so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. 
And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I'm going to skip a few verses onto the next in chapter, uh, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not, called, uh, have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Great. Let me just pray for us as we begin and invite the Holy Spirit. Yes, Holy Spirit, would you be with us as we explore your word? And I pray, Lord, would you be speaking to us, enlightening us, uh, and creating in us a heart that follows Jesus, after Jesus, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, yeah, we pray that you would help us to learn from your words and what you have to say to live your way in the world today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just wanted to look at two things from this passage. And the first one is encounter. Simply and the encounter that these disciples have, who Jesus meets, how he meets them, and where he meets them. And the second one is their response. How do Simon and, uh, and Levi respond to this encounter with Jesus? So just some context to start with. Uh, some of you, many of you, most of you hopefully will remember Nathan's preach, and uh, don't worry if you don't. Uh, I'm sure it was a very memorable one, though. Um, but last week, Nathan preached on Jesus in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth. And in, in that passage, we found that Jesus declares the year of the Lord's favor, that he is ushering in the year of the Lord's favor, a time where God would bring freedom and forgiveness to all of humanity's brokenness and sin and pain. And, <clears throat> excuse me. and since then, Jesus has essentially been putting this preaching into practice. He's been putting into practice by healing people, casting out demons, declaring forgiveness for sinners, and preaching the good news of God's kingdom to a hurting world. In Israel, up and down the country, crowds are starting to hear this news and, uh, and flocking towards him to hear more. And by this point, he had gathered crowd after crowd who would press around him, not only to receive his healing, but also to hear his teaching. And so this is where we land at the start of chapter 5. Jesus is by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And apparently this is the lowest freshwater lake in all the earth. And it was a place that was bustling with fishing, and it was surrounded by all sorts of trades. People wouldn't just come here to buy their fish and their, uh, and their supply of food, but actually, apparently, the lake provided and still provides the larger source of fresh drinking water in all of Israel. So here we have Jesus, a crowd of people in front of him, fishing boats behind him. And you can almost picture the scene. You can, you can almost smell the, the fish surrounding him, the noise of waves on the beach, the sun skipping across the water uh, as it breaks against the little fishing boats, fishermen calling out to each other behind him, uh, trying to sort out through their day's catch of fish. Now, 
Obviously, this isn't the most optimal preaching condition, right? I mean, you think about it, even in a room like this with amplified sound, me with a microphone, chairs here, uh, we can still easily get distracted by things. But you imagine being in a lake with bustling trade going on, fishing, and people all around you. I mean, not only would it be hard to preach, but it would be hard to hear. But it's in the middle of all of this, and in the middle of this really hard working day, that we get to see Jesus' first personal encounter with this guy called Simon, who we also know as the Apostle Peter. So Jesus meets this guy at the, at the end of a very, very bad working day. Now, I mean, this guy has fished all night, and he's caught nothing. Now, have you ever felt like your work has been a complete waste of time? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> well, Simon probably did. Not only has he toiled all night, but now we see that he has to clean this huge, big, muddy net, and he has to return home exhausted and deflated uh, to a disappointed family who relied on fish not just for food, but also as their source of income. And I can just imagine Simon, all he wants to do, poor guy, is just get home, get in his bed, and just have a huge nap. And this kind of tiredness and disappointment isn't that different to what we can experience in day-to-day life. Whether it's with our work, whether it's with our family, whether it's with our friendships, simply living in a city like London can feel like such a hustle such striving and toiling simply to get by. But it's in the middle of all of this exhaustion that Jesus makes a beeline for Peter from the crowd. First, he seeks Simon for his boat, giving it as a a platform for Jesus' work. But the boat itself wouldn't have done. You see, Simon, uh, he, he he didn't just offer up the boat. He actually had to go physically with the boat into the deep water and hold onto it to stop it from drifting or spinning away. I mean, this isn't just like a still, steady uh, environment he's in. There's wind, there's waves. And in fact, if he wasn't there, then all you'd have had is Jesus sort of like turning around every time he wanted to preach and then come back to the crowd. So here is Peter. I can just imagine him. What, what was he feeling with this request? I can just imagine this exhausted breath coming from him. (sighs) Okay. But Jesus seems to have this habit of meeting people, not just when they're happy and in a holy place, but he has a habit of equally meeting us in moments when we're sad and tired, and also in places where we often deem as secular. He met Simon where he was, and he uses what we have however great or small that may be. And through us, he communicates something incredible about himself to the people around us in our lives. I mean, think about it. Simon wasn't just here with a random, uh, seemingly random crowd of people. These would have been people that, uh, it, it would have been his friends, it would have been his colleagues, it would have been his customers, people from his town. He would have known these people. And so we too, are called to surrender our own friendships, our own family, our own colleagues, and expect that Jesus is working through us even when we are unaware and tired and disappointed. And what I love about it, uh, what I love is that Jesus doesn't just do this for someone like Simon, who's tired, deflated, and discouraged. 
We then read about his encounter with Levi, a tax collector. Jesus sees him. Sorry, I feel like this mic is like going all over the place. I don't know. Is it not moving? I feel like it is. It's tugging on my ear. Okay. Let's clip it back on my... Okay, that's better. Anyway, what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't just do this for Simon. We then go on to read about his encounter with Levi, a tax collector, who he also meets, guess where? In the middle of a very hard, busy working day right there in his tax booth. And I think it's no coincidence that Luke, the writer of this gospel, wants to zoom in on these two encounters of Jesus, one with Simon and one with Levi. These aren't just people who would meet on the, on the street and just become natural friends. In fact, these are two guys who, if you put them in the same room, would probably be very hostile and at enmity with each other. It's like trying to mix the ingredients for dynamite. Tax collectors worked for Rome, the conquerors over Israel. They, they exacted heavy taxes on people like Simon. And it might be hard to picture this, but uh, just, to, just to give something, an illustration that might help, imagine for a second that you are an ordinary Ukrainian, but then you're brought into a room with a fellow Ukrainian countryman who works for the Russians. But not only that, their job is to collect money from other Ukrainians in order to fund Russia's military operation. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me, I'd be like, are you serious? You want me to do what? Get along with who? And this isn't the perfect illustration, but it probably comes close. Tax collectors were considered sellouts and traitors. You can imagine the tension this would have caused between the disciples. Now, I also just wonder, what would have Levi felt like in this situation? Was he scared? I would be. Be terrified. Maybe I'd have a sense of shame or, or, or guilt if I'm put in the same room as Simon and his companions. Maybe a sense of disconnect or, or someone who can't relate to anyone else in the room. Yet here's what's unexpected. Jesus invites both Simon and Levi to join him and follow him and serve his movement. Now, let's just go back to Simon just for a second. I mean, this guy is so deflated, right? He's probably ready to go home, forget the day ever happened. But before he can, Jesus has one last request for him. He says, go, go fishing. It's like the thing that you dread at the, at the end of a really hard, intense day at work, when someone just pops in the office and goes, oh, and just one more thing. <laughs> Jesus essentially says to Simon, oh, and just one more thing, Simon, before you head off, I want you to get back in your boat, row all the way back into the deep, cast your net back down, and see what fish you might catch. Surely this was the worst time to tell anyone to go fishing again. Not only had they worked all night and not done anything, but in the daytime, in the peak time, where the lake was at its busiest and where it was light and the fish could actually see the nets much more clearer, it would have seemed absolutely bonkers. But I think here is a picture of Jesus inviting us to step out and do things that might not feel all that rational to our own minds. It might not fit 
with our way of thinking about things. It may not make much sense to us, but here Simon has to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing, even if he doesn't. And he, and it, <laughs> he starts off with this half-hearted protest. He says, but we've, we've worked all night and we've caught nothing. But then he says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And he recognizes there's something about Jesus' authority that provokes him to even obey a little bit. I, I find this really powerful, actually, because what, what we see here is that even a little faith in Jesus during a bad time results and can result in unexpected blessing. And here is where we get to see Simon's response to this. And I find his response very interesting. I don't know about you. Have you ever had moments in life where a moment of wonder turns into a moment of woe. Like, uh, if I invited you over to my family dinner, uh, it can be a moment of feasting, and it can quickly turn to a, a, a moment of feud. I don't know about anyone else's family, but maybe just mine. Or if you, let's say, fall in love with someone or start getting really close to someone, and then you start getting fearful and worried because it's creating this vulnerability, exposing of who you are to this other person. And you start becoming scared. This moment of wonder to woe, I think, is something that Peter is also experiencing. See, after the miracle of fish, Simon tells Jesus to get away. Get, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Why? Now, we might wonder why, but this response wasn't actually unusual. hasn't been unusual in the Bible when anyone encounters something really holy from God. Uh, author and theologian Joe Wharton puts it this way. He says that Simon's response goes from celebration, being amazed at a miracle, to revelation, discovering who Jesus is, to then consternation, turning to, to fear. And many of you might know, actually, that Simon's response here is not unique in the Bible. It's actually very similar uh, to other responses, particularly to the response of Isaiah the prophet 700 years before this moment. And particularly in Isaiah chapter 6, we see that the prophet has this really wonderful vision of God, majestic and glorious and holy. And immediately, as he, feels, as he sees this vision, he, see, he feels this exposure of all his failure and, 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 and fear and flaws. He says, woe, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He starts becoming afraid of what being close to God might reveal about himself. But not only that, he starts becoming afraid of how God will respond to that revelation of himself, as if God didn't know it already. But Jesus turns to Simon and he says this. He says, fear not, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. See, in the Old Testament, God commissions Isaiah to go out and call the people of Israel back to himself. And here, Jesus is commissioning Simon to go out and catch people for the kingdom of God. And just like Isaiah, Simon found that Jesus doesn't disown us in our own sinfulness. Instead, he actually calls us to him. He calls us to be a part of his world-changing movement. And he can do this. He can do this, not only because he's God, 
but because he would take away every sin and every guilt by going to the cross and dying the death that we needed in order to receive God's forgiveness. And he would rise again so that we too can rise to stand holy before God. We can stand holy because he has provided the biggest miracle of all, bigger than any fish that you could catch. Salvation through the cross. But I guess there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another layer of a question that I find myself asking. Why is it that I, and I, I think many of us, feel so often held back from experiencing and celebrating this? I think there are a number of reasons, but here are just two big pitfalls, I think, can hold us back from, from receiving this fully and truly. And I think these are two big pitfalls that also could have held both Simon and Levi back when Jesus calls them. And the two pitfalls are cynicism and greed. Uh, Author and bishop Graham Tomlin put cynicism this way. He says, cynicism is usually the hard crust of a hurting soul. Our most painful experiences in life, uh, i.e. being hurt by friends or family or being rejected by someone we love or maybe it's experiencing failure at work, And out of fear of being hurt again or failing again, we defend ourselves by shrinking into ourselves, sometimes even physically avoiding others so that we don't have to be vulnerable again. Uh, We view the world with suspicion, expecting to be hurt again. And so we'll guard our own selves with jealousy. I wonder if that's familiar for any of us in the room. I wonder if, even by the way that we think about ourselves and the world and others and about God, is depictive of this. What can you tell me that I don't know already? I've seen all this before. I've heard all this before. Same old, same old. I've tried praying a thousand times. What difference is another time really going to make? What does Jesus know about my problems? What does he know about my feelings with with myself or my work or my family. But what's amazing is we become very good at hiding cynicism with a very good-looking exterior in life. We can even have lots of friends and seem successful, yet inside we closely guard our hearts by turning in on ourselves and away from a hostile world. What does Jesus know about fishing? He's a rabbi. He's never had to cast down a net. I've done this a thousand times. Why should I expect anything different this one time? Yeah, maybe he does miracles for others. Why should he bother doing anything for me or you? Just disappointment. That's all I should expect. I think cynicism could have very easily crept in for Simon. Very easily crept in. But instead, he chooses to respond in faith. And this becomes the trajectory of his life going forward, even with all his fears and his failings and his flaws. And let me be clear, the Bible doesn't hold back from exposing these. Like, it's very clear. Simon was a very broken individual, but yet through everything, he continues on trusting in Jesus. So while Simon could have been held back by cynicism, I think Levi could have been held back by greed. Because materially, this guy had it all by the world's standards. He was wealthy. He had the backing of powerful people. He had the backing of an empire. 
But Jesus meets Levi, who we also know as Matthew, the tax collector. And he meets him in a very different circumstance of life. There definitely wasn't a lack of fish for his dinner. He could afford a banquet. He didn't have to labor all night to make a quick buck. He can afford the nice big house, certainly enough to have a whole new crowd of people come in and dine with Jesus. He was probably able to live in a very nice part of town. He was probably able to have the, the nicest horse or the vehicle, whatever vehicle they had in that time. And all this could have held him back from faith. All of this could have fixed his attention on his position and his possessions instead of the person of Jesus. And in fact, I don't think Levi's alone in this. Like, let's be real, I think Simon could also have been in danger of giving in to greed. This wasn't the first time Simon had, had witnessed a miracle. In Luke 4, actually, the chapter just before, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. So Simon knows that this is a guy that can do incredible things. And his intention could have been led by the catch of fish, thinking that coming to Jesus would make him big bucks. And his attention could have easily been fixed on this fishy abundance rather than the one who makes the catch possible. But here's what's key in both Simon and Levi's response. And I think here's what's key for us too. Instead of cynicism or greed, they both respond with a life of repentance. They both trust that following Jesus is worth infinitely more than any sin, anything their cynicism could give them or their greed could achieve. And it also results in this most unexpected friendship, this most unexpected community of this mixed bunch of disciples, a part of this movement that no one's experienced for. And just like Simon and Matthew, you and I, too, are a very mixed bunch of disciples. Like, there'll be some of us in this room who are like fervent worshipers. Like, as soon as the first chord begins to play, you're like, yes, I'm ready. And then there's others of us that are just like, I have, I have these doubts, I have these uncertainties. I'm going to worship you, Jesus, through it, but I, I, I'm struggling here. And many of us, most of us actually, will be somewhere in between. Like, we'll be a mixture of both. But what I find really beautiful and amazing with Jesus' calling of these disciples is that he calls everyone, regardless of where they're at. Uh, in Judaism, back in this, this time, being a disciple of a rabbi or teacher was only just a means to an end. The real goal was that you would eventually yourself become a rabbi and a teacher. But for disciples of Jesus, discipleship was not this step towards a promising career, Instead, Jesus' call to follow him was in and of itself the fulfillment of our calling. Jesus doesn't promise his disciples that they would become these high-achieving rabbis or these religious experts. He simply says to Simon, Simon, follow me, don't be afraid, follow me, and I'm going to make you into a fisher of people. Our call is simply to encounter Jesus and then our call is to help others come and encounter him too. Because ultimately, discipleship is not this position that we're aiming to get to. Discipleship is a relationship, a personal relationship that we get to enjoy with God and with each other. Our rabbi students were usually nothing more than that, just students. But Jesus' disciples were more. 
Jesus' disciples were called to be servants, servants of him and of each other. And in John 15, he calls his disciples friends. So here's a question for us as I close, and I wonder if the band can come back up. Is Jesus your friend? Is Jesus your friend? And I ask this because if there is any of us who have descended into cynicism or greed, maybe this this is something that holds us back from our friendship with him. If there is any sin or darkness in our lives, maybe, maybe that is holding back our friendship. And maybe this is a moment for us to say, Jesus, please help me. Help me to, to turn away from what I know is wrong and to turn to you instead. Is there any cynicism holding you back from joining the feast that Jesus wants you in? You know, sometimes I, um, I, I sometimes feel like I relate more, not to Simon or Levi in the story, but to the Pharisees. Those who grumble that Jesus isn't doing things the way they want him to do it. Or Jesus isn't speaking to the people they want him to speak to or doing things the way they want seen done. Instead of just joining the feast, I can remain on the outside complaining about who's inside. And so I don't get to taste the goodness of what Jesus wants me to enjoy. Has the hard crust of cynicism made me indifferent to Jesus and his calling over my life? Has it made you indifferent to his calling over you? Well, here's the good news. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you recognize that that's you, then you're in good, very good company here. Jesus calls you and me broken, needy, and sinful. He says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Follow me, and I will renew you. Surrender it all to me. Surrender it all, the good, the bad, the unholy, the trivial, the mundane, the disappointment, the exhaustion, the tiredness. Bring it all to me. He can take whatever we have, whoever we are, and however you feel right now or in the past few weeks or months or even this year, he can take it all and he can use it for his glory and he can use it for his movement in unexpected ways. You know, earlier before the service, a few of us uh, were praying and we really, really had the sense that God is speaking to us about joy. He's just parting that on our hearts. Uh, Perhaps it's for today, perhaps it's for uh, a long time coming, but we really sense that joy is something that God is calling us to and communicating to us. And I tell you, there is nothing that robs us of joy more than cynicism and greed. So if we're in a point where we're desperate for that joy of God and we're just like, God, I feel like I'm in a point of faith where I just like, I'm lacking that joy. And maybe this is a moment as we worship to surrender what we have, even the little that we might have, however small or big your boat might be, to say, Jesus, use this. This is your platform. This is for you. Give me the strength to hold it. Just hold it and just let you do all the work. So I wonder if you'll just stand with me and I'll pray for us as we close.
Uh, I'm just going to read a prayer out that um, I read this morning as part of a devotional, and I thought it was very fitting for what we are hearing today. I'm just going to read out Matthew 11 from the Message Translation. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus, we come to you for a deep rest today. We spend so much of our lives dissatisfied, wanting more stuff, more money, more friends, more applause, more miracles. Today, we put away our superhero capes and thank you very simply that because we have you, we have everything we will ever truly need. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, anoint us again this week to proclaim good news to the poor. Send us out again this week to bind up the brokenhearted. Help us again this week to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.